0: There, thank you, Sherry. That's my secretary, Sherry. Um, those of you that are here, so I know you're awake, say amen. Amen. Good one. Those of you on Zoom, wave, can see a few faces, or just say amen out loud anyway. It'll make the neighbors think something's going on in your house. Uh, the backstory Paul the Apostle writes this book to Timothy, Second Timothy, Second Book to Timothy. Encourage him, he's a very timid kind of. Uh, nervous pastor of a church where there's all kinds of false teachers and bad teaching going on. He's been tempted to give up. So Paul is just giving him one last, and I mean last, this is the last book Paul writes. He's about to be killed for his faith. He's in prison as he writes. One last encouraging letter. But in this letter, there's even more meat and potatoes than there is in First Timothy, doctrinally. Uh, it's just excellent for that. So, um, yeah. Um, so, uh, tonight we're going to see a variety of subjects, the first of which is farming. Those of you that are farmers, you're going to appreciate this. No, I'm just kidding. But there is an analogy about farming in verse 6. That's where we're going to be. So, let's dive in. Second Timothy chapter 2. Um, He's given him in this chapter already uh, an analogy of being a soldier in verse 3, and then um, an athlete um, in verse 5, and uh, verse 6 says, the hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. So there's three analogies right there. What they have in common is when you're in a race as an athlete or a boxing match or whatever, You don't quit early. You got to go all four quarters of the game or until the race is done. Same thing with a soldier. You stay focused on the battle, and that's what matters most, being a good soldier, and you don't quit until there's victory. As to the farmer, the hardworking farmer he's talking about here, the first to receive a share of the crops. Now, there's a couple angles in the commentaries on this verse. Obviously a farmer, to be a farmer, it's not, you just plant everything and it just comes up and you're in, it's a lot of hard work. There's weeds, you gotta continually water, trim things. Um, You can tell I don't know that much about farming, right? Um, But uh, the point is hard work, but it pays off. There's a reward at the end for an athlete, the prize, for a soldier winning the war, for a farmer, the crops that come, and he's the first to enjoy the fruits of those crops. In each case, there's hard work, there's perseverance, and there's a reward. For the farming analogy, Jesus uses similar things about casting seeds, right, and the various types of soils. We won't go into that now, but Um, The other angle on this is the first to receive a share of the crop. Some think it means that the farmer is a pastor like Timothy and that it's okay for him to receive payment for what he does as a not inordinate, not 20 million a year or anything, but um, he can receive a share of the harvest, if you will. But the majority opinion was that the share of the crops, the share of the harvest is that what he's feeding his people, he ought to be taking in himself, the word of God, if you will. So the hardworking farmer should be, farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. All three of those analogies involve, as we said, uh, perseverance, hard work, even suffering. Farmer, you got to be available all hours of the day sometimes. A pipe breaks, something happens kind of thing. Um, in each case, there's no fruits right away. You don't become a soldier and win the battle next Tuesday might take some time. Same thing with athletes training for a long period of time, farmers. Um, so in chapter two, he uses seven figures of speech, a son, S O N soldier, athlete, farmer, a teacher, a vessel, and a servant. We're going to see. Okay. Now let's get to the new age movement. Shall we? You say, what? Verse seven, NIV has reflect on. Anybody have meditate on? Some translations have the word meditate there. Now, there's such a thing as Eastern or transcendental meditation. Have you ever heard about this? In the 60s, the Beatles popularized it with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. Three of the four of them ended up becoming disillusioned with him and could see right through him. One kind of kept it up the rest of his life, George Harrison. So this is not what's being talked about here. Eastern meditation involves, believe it or not, the emptying of your mind. When you do that and that you do it by chanting something over and over, a mantra, om, and you say it over and over until you enter an altered state of consciousness. This is not good because once you've let go that much. The demonic world has an open door. So, but Joe, it says meditate on, and Ivy has reflect on. This is, instead of emptying your mind, when the Bible says meditate on something, it means fill your mind with that thing. What is he talking about? Fill your mind with, reflect on, think about digest it mentally, what I am saying, and the Lord will give you insight in all of this. How many know that the more you study the Word of God, the more you see things you didn't see before? And you can study Second Timothy in five years from now, and you'll see stuff, and so will I, that we missed. And you'll say, Joe missed that, and I'll say, amen. I probably did. But it's a supernatural book. We're going to talk a lot about the Bible itself tonight, when we get there uh, in the scripture. But anyway, reflect on what I'm saying. Don't read the Bible like you would a magazine or newspaper article and just skim it and read it thoughtfully. If you believe the Bible is God's book, God's message to us, wouldn't you read it slowly and think? try to think about each thing? I'm going to give you rules of hermeneutics. You say, what's that? It's the science of how to interpret what the Bible says. It sounds all heady. It won't be, I promise. Reflect on what I'm saying, meditate on it. Uh, I love that idea. There's a word in the Psalms um, that is uh, Selah or Selah. You ever see it? S E L A H. In the Psalms, it appears 71 times. Okay. And it's not easy to translate. Why are you bringing this up now? Because, well, I'm glad you asked, because um, some say the word means praise. It tends to happen after some profound thing is said about God or about salvation or joy or something really uh, full of meaning. Some say it's a musical term that means, a musical interlude here, but almost everyone agrees that the reason it's there is it's a marker to say what was just said was really important. Stop and meditate on it. Think about it. Selah, S-E-L-A-H. So when you're reading the Psalms and it's in a bunch of Psalms, uh, especially in the twenties, but it's all over the place when you see that word, stop and say, why is that there? And and look at it. It's like, to me, it's a pause to really think about what was just said. In the New Testament, there are three of those things, not Selah, which is Hebrew. In the New Testament, the three sayings, number one is Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, verily, verily, if you have King James, verily, verily, I say unto you, Um, I think New American Standard or NIV has, I tell you the truth, when you see that, that means, listen up, this is really important in the Gospels. Second one is um, um, Book of Revelation. He who has an ear, let him hear. Don't just pass over that. You say, well, everybody has an ear pretty much, right? Exactly. It means stop and really listen to what's being said. The third one we're going to see in Second Timothy, which is something like, here is a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance. That's another one of those in the Bible. This is really important. So we'll get to one of those shortly, but Selah, I love that. Stop, think about it, meditate on it. Okay, um, not emptying your mind, filling your mind with the Word of God. Um, So he's, remember in the broad context, he's trying to encourage Timothy, keep the faith. Don't give up. It's a hard church to pastor, false teachers, all kinds of weird stuff. Verse eight, he goes right to doctrine. And that's what he's going to, that here's a trustworthy saying, by the way, comes in verse 11. Those of you that are reading ahead, I saw you. Verse eight, remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Son of David or descended from David. Okay. You may say, well, that's kind of a duh. This is a Christian guy writing another Christian guy. Remember Jesus Christ. Now, this is deep doctrinally. Remember that the name Jesus is the name of the man. Christ is a title, it's Messiah, is what it means. And the words son of David. Is doesn't just mean a descendant of David, doesn't mean this actual son, it means somewhere down the line in David's line, genetically, will come the messiah. The Jews saw it this way to the point that they understood Son of David was a messiah title. Several times in the gospels, when somebody wants healing, they say to him, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It doesn't, it's not just a genetic thing, he's they're they're proclaiming we know you're the Messiah. Okay. It had to come through David. If you read the genealogy in Matthew and there's a genealogy in Luke toward the beginning of those books, you'll notice a weird thing. They're not the same. and not even that close. Did you ever notice that? Matthew's gospel traces Jesus back to his legal Jewish father, Joseph. You say, but he's really like a stepfather. God's his father, Mary's his mother. Yes, but legally, it's the father in the household. So Matthew, it turns out, guess what? Comes from the line of David, King David, Old Testament, who lives about a thousand years before Jesus shows up. It's a lot of generations. Uh, We won't go there now. Mary's genealogy, the genealogy of Jesus through her mother, his mother, is what's in Luke. That's why they're different. Why both? Because what makes a kid really Jewish is a Jewish mom. So both Mary and Joseph come through the line of different ways. David, both have that uh, in their ancestry. So he is a son of David both ways um, and the Messiah. So there's an interest. And by the way, that goes back to 2 Samuel 7 is the prediction that the son of David, a descendant of David, will be the Messiah. Earlier in the Bible, we find out that a son of Abraham, who is way back uh, another thousand years or so before even more before David is where everybody's going to come through. To be a son of Abraham is to be Jewish. Um, let's see. So uh, an interesting thing occurs. I want to take you there. Um, Mark chapter 12. So from 2 Timothy, take a left, go all the way back to the beginning of the New Testament, which is Matthew, and then turn one book to the right. Matthew's pretty easy to find. Mark chapter whatever I said, was it 12? Um, Yeah, 12. Mark chapter 12, verse 35 to 37. Jesus comes down the hardest on the religious leaders, because they memorized huge portions of the Old Testament. You would think they would figure out, this guy's the Messiah. Okay, so in Matthew I'm sorry Mark 12 35 while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts he asked he's asking a rhetorical question of them okay little little brain twister for you pharisees jewish leaders how is it that the teachers of the law say that the christ is the son of david see if that was all he asked They would say, well, it's just going to be a descendant of David. That's what we're looking for. They haven't checked his genealogy. By the way, the Jews kept really great records of genealogies. So he asks about that. And then he says in verse 36, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord, that's God the Father, said to my Lord, wait. God the Father is Lord, yeah. Remember, the Jews are monotheistic, so are we, one God. The Lord said to my Lord, wait, you go, wait, there's two Lords there having a conversation? There's only one Lord, or is there? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put my enemies under your feet. David himself calls him the Messiah, way down the line, lives a thousand years, Jesus does after David, Lord. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? In other words, Lord, if you call somebody Lord, that implies that they are greater than you, that they existed before you, but Jesus exists after David. Do you understand the conundrum he's giving them? Um, And by the way, there's no answer. Uh, In fact, the next thing he says is watch out for these teachers of the law in verse 38. Uh, they're a bunch of hypocrites. Okay, so what's going on here? The son of David, the Messiah, does come in time a thousand years after David, a baby's born. But that baby is David's Lord. Meaning what? That he's always existed, that he's God. But wait, you said it's a baby, so it's a human. Exactly. The God-man, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man the where this is really um brought out uh and it's in the notes somewhere um hmm i don't see it well uh in any case only the son of god could could say that and be the one standing before them who'd always existed he he is david's lord um Oh, I know what it is, uh, and I don't see the reference here, but it's in Revelation where Jesus is called uh, the root and the offspring of David. You say what? Root comes before the fruit, right? The root means he is before David. The offspring means he's after David. Now, if you're getting a headache, it's because Jesus is fully God and fully. Man, kind of a cool thing, I think. Okay, go back to um, 2 Timothy with me, if you will. So he, Jesus, proves himself to be Lord and the Son of God by doing miracles and by rising from the dead. We're about to talk about that as well. Um, so um, go back to verse 8 of Second Timothy 2. Jesus Christ raised from the dead. Okay, that's a great credential. The crucifixion was the payment for sin. The resurrection was the receipt from God, showing if there was any sin in this guy they crucified, he'd still be dead. Because the wages of sin is death, Romans 6. The fact that he rises from the dead shows God realizes, as Jesus did, there's no sin. Jesus has the audacity when he's on the earth to say, Which of you convicts me of sin? I'll tell you, I would never say that, and neither would you, right? There'd be a big long list for me and you. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead. We won't go there now, but I could show you there's three verses that are really a trip about that, which are, Romans says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, the spirit of him who raised Christ from the dead. There are scriptures in the New Testament that say God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And there's more than one scripture that's Jesus talking, and he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Mistake? No. Who raised Jesus from the dead? God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's pretty amazing. Remember, he's saying, Jesus Christ, that he's raised from the dead and that he's descended from David. He's the son of David who he is, is very, very important. Christianity is not a set of do's and don'ts as much as it is a person. Jesus Christ, Savior, Lord, Messiah. Verse 8, this is my gospel. Um, Oh, let's see. Did I skip a verse? I think I did. Hold on. No? Oh, I didn't finish that one. All right, hold on. My page got ripped, and I can't see what it says very well in this rinky-dink production. This is my gospel. Oh yeah, that's the end of verse 8. Descended from David, raised from the dead. By the way, there's other religious leaders and philosophers that are famous. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius religious leader Jim Jones remember that cult Joseph Smith who started Mormonism Charles Taze Russell who started Jehovah's Witnesses what do all these religious leaders have in common they're all dead right Moses Abraham David you could go on and on in the Old Testament only one has been an empty tomb has been raised from the dead um verse Nine, this is my gospel, verse nine, for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. He's talking to a guy that's tempted to give up because of suffering and persecution. And Paul's saying, Hey, this is the same gospel. You believe it. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, son of David. He's the Messiah. We know He was. This gospel is the reason I'm in prison. I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. Probably has chains around his arms right, hands right now. Maybe feet as well in stocks. I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. I love this, but God's word is not chained. What does that mean? It's a metaphor, isn't it? To be chained is to be restricted. Paul could not move very much there. Certainly couldn't walk across the room. He's chained. He couldn't leave that prison cell. He's chained. He can't go to the beach. He can't go wherever he wants. He is not free. He's saying, even though I, the face you know, Timothy, of Christianity, I'm chained, and maybe that's a little embarrassing for you, God's word is still moving. It never can be changed. Listen, the Bible has been more attacked. It's book burnings. They've had Bible burnings. The Bible has been uh, impugned and said that it's not true, that they changed it. You always hear all these things that's been mistranslated. They took a lot of stuff out. They keep attacking the Bible. And guess what? In the United States of America, every year, the Bible is the best-selling book. Don't look it up, though, because you got to really look. What do you mean? Well, if you look at Barnes and Nobles or whether they're out of business now, um, Amazon's best selling list, they don't list it. New York Times bestseller list. You ever hear of that? His book was on the New York Times bestseller list for 11 weeks. Why don't they list the Bible? It's a different category. I'll prove it to you. How many of you own more than one Bible? Raise your hands. Those of you on Zoom. Come on. You go to a hotel room. You don't see it as much as you used to. Bible in the drawer. Thousands of Bibles going out. The Bible, listen, is the best-selling book in America every year. It is the best-selling book in the world overall. By the way, number two is surprising. It's a book by Mao Zedong, the former leader of China, and he made everybody buy a copy. Don't you love that? I think I'm going to do that with you people. Um, I'll write a book. You have to buy it. Um, No, I'm just kidding. Okay. The gospel, the word is not chained. God will use it. I've said this often. We go through our daily lives and we see our pets and we see our houses and we see the blue sky and the trees and plants and our work and our friends. And listen, in your whole life, there's two things you see that will last forever everything else is temporary and it's they're gonna it's gonna burn all your stuff's gonna burn your car your money your jewelry your clothes your house it's all gonna burn the people you see every day look around the room are eternal they're gonna live somewhere for eternity that makes people in my mind really important they're eternal And makes cars not that important to me. No offense, Todd. <laughs> um, what's the other thing? You know what the Bible says? The Bible. It'll last forever. They've tried to stamp it out. Forget it. You'll never get rid of it. The flower fade. The grass withers. The flower fades. The word of God lasts what? Forever. And it hasn't been changed. It's the same because God hasn't changed. So the word of God is not chain. When we witness to somebody, we feel so unworthy and like, I don't know, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? And You know what? Quote the Bible to them. It's like a double-edged sword. It cuts right to the heart of people's problems. The word of God, listen, your Bible in your lap there is a supernatural book. Supernatural. No other book changed my life or yours like this one did. No self-help book, no philosophy book, no other religious book is anything like it. Hinduism has the Vedas writings, okay? Um, Islam has the Quran. Um, there's all kinds of religious writings. The Bible has thousands of predictions that turned out to be right. That's absent from the Hindu Vedas, absent from the Koran the and all other religious writings. The Bible is an amazing book. When we get to heaven, we're going to wish we studied it more than we do. Don't read it quickly. Uh, it's not chained. Just quote the Bible and watch what it does in people's lives um okay we beat that dead horse i'm still reading oh yeah that's isaiah 48 the grass withers the flower fades the word of god stands forever but we can put a chain around the bible you say what if your pastor does a sermon where there's that much bible and a bunch of stories and positive thinking and a lot of blinking like that guy on tv um then that's putting a chain around the Bible. He's not using it. Or if they change the Bible or they ignore it, they're chaining it. And yet the Bible still changes hearts with or without it. If you know anything about the world of getting people off of alcohol and drugs, the Bible is more effective than all the other ways people we were talking about celebrate recovery Um, A.A. has as its root, the Bible, and they sort of watered it down, and it's a higher power, right? Whoever you perceive that higher power, him or her, to be, I hate that. There's one higher power, right? Okay, don't get me started on that. Uh, We already talked about that. Okay, back to the text. Are you still awake? Say amen. Good one. You guys on Zoom, you doing good? All right, great. Uh, I'm suffering to the point of being chained like a criminal. God's word's not changed. Therefore, chained. Therefore, verse 10, I endure everything for the sake of... You're expecting him to say the, the sake of God, and he says, for the sake of the chosen or the elect. We'll talk about that in a second. That they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Okay, so he says, because God's word isn't changed because our Lord is the one that was raised from the dead, the son of David, the Messiah, fully God, fully man, we know the truth and we have it, for that I'm willing to endure everything. Indeed, weeks, months, days maybe after he writes this, they cut his head off in Rome and he goes willingly. He won't recant. He won't say I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Let me go. He's willing to endure anything. Why? Wouldn't it be more wouldn't it be better if he had just lied and said, "Okay, I don't believe in Jesus. Leave me alone." Then he could go preach the gospel again. The reason is because he remembers how much Jesus suffered for him. Right? The ultimate suffering is to die for something you believe in so he's willing to willingly enduring everything for the sake of the elect the chosen that's what the word means the chosen ones you say who is that do you believe in the lord jesus yes then you're chosen i don't understand why i can tell you from the scriptures it's not because God thought you were so special, so spiritual, so holy, so good. She is so, he is unbelievable. Forget it. I know what I was like before I was saved. I wouldn't have picked me. It's a big mistake as far as I'm concerned, but I'm like, great, you know. The point is, God does the choosing. John 15, he's talking to his apostles. You know what he says? You did not choose me, I chose you. It's weird because when you become a Christian, you think, I chose Jesus. I looked at the other religions. I'm very spiritual. God was drawing you. John six forty four. no man can come to me, Jesus says, unless the father who sent me draws him, pulls him in. Whether you felt it or not, somebody was tugging at your shirt or blouse. Hopefully blouse if you're a woman and shirt if you're a man. Okay, politically incorrect. Let's move on. Um, why, why are you enduring all this, Paul, for the sake of the elect? By the way, why doesn't it say God there? Because if you love God, you'll love his people. The weird thing about the elect, the chosen is, if this was a room full of unbelievers, and I'm teaching you about Jesus, and you're considering Christianity, the weird thing is, I can't look at you and see, okay, she's chosen, he's not, he is, he's not, she is. You can't tell. What's your point? So just cast the seeds out there and let God work it out. You no one saves anyone except Jesus does the same. What do you mean? I mean, I could witness to Patty for 10 years and then finally she says, okay, I believe. Let's pray. And she becomes a Christian. I would never say I saved Patty. Wrong. Jesus say Patty. I just told her about it and she believes him because the Holy Spirit was doing the work in her life the whole time and giving me the words the whole time. It's all grace. It's all undeserved. For the sake of the elect, that's why I'm enduring everything Paul says in verse 10, so that they too may obtain the salvation. That's the key. That's in Christ Jesus. John 14, 6. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Uh, In the book of Acts, I think it is, or Romans, I can never remember. Um, I think it's Acts. Uh, Peter says, there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. What's your point, Joe? Christianity, don't miss it, is not politically correct. It's very narrow. There's one way. Jesus or judgment. That's it. What about all the other ways? They're man-made religions. Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, we mentioned all those, right? Atheism, the New Age movement, all man-made attempts to reach up like the tower of babel so the salvation that's in a person christ jesus with eternal glory now it is not blasphemous of me to explain to you that that eternal glory is his and yours that we we go to glory right there's great glory for believers not because we're so great but but We are wearing the righteousness of the one who is great. Let's keep rolling. Here it comes. Selah. Remember? Um, He who has an ear, let him hear. Well, that's not in here. But here is a trustworthy saying. It's the second time Paul has said it in a letter to Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying. That's another way of saying, listen up. This is really important. Most commentators think what follows that is the words to a very well known hymn or saying that christians would recite i believe it's the words to a song i can't go into why but in the greek it's rhythmic it sounds like lyrics from a song in this is uh, in this little couplet i'll read the whole thing if we died with him we will also live with him if we endure We will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. That's the little song or couplet, they call it. It's actually three couplets uh, two, uh, four, I'm sorry, two are negative and two are positive. So let's take it apart. First of all, it's a trustworthy saying. So it's something they would memorize. Okay, here it comes. First one, if we died with him, we will also live with him. Okay, what what do you mean there? Do you mean like dying and being a believer? And the answer is there's there's three thoughts here because the Bible talks about dying with Jesus three different ways. One is the one that most of you have been through already one is one that you all will go through probably and then one is one that almost nobody in this room or on zoom will go through hopefully what are they number one baptism is referred to in the bible as a picture of dying to your old self dying with christ going under the water and then you come up washed looking like a drowned rat if you're like me but you come up washed to newness of life In that sense, when you become a Christian, you have died. Your old self has died. You are saying, I don't want that person anymore. Okay, there's that. The primary meaning is literally dying. Your last breath, right? That's something everybody's going to go through unless there's a rapture, right? And we're instantly changed. No death. That'd be nice, wouldn't it? The third way is the toughest one. Paul did it. Stephen did it. 11 of the 12 apostles apostles did it, martyrdom, where you, the reason for your death is not a disease. It is not that you had a fall somewhere off a cliff or got hit by a car. It's because of your faith in Jesus, somebody killed you, a martyr. Wow. That is the highest um, death there is in the Bible. And I don't wish it on you, but we have to have this sort of teaching in the back of our minds not to wimp out if it's ever, we're going to kill you if we're, you're caught with a Bible. I wouldn't give my Bible up. I'd go, well, if you catch me with it, oh well, I get to be with Jesus. The point is, um, if we died with him, which sounds bad from a human standpoint, we mourn death, don't we? And rightfully so, because we're going to miss the person. But if we died with him, Paul says, we will also live with him. As a matter of fact, there is no separation time-wise between the moment a believer dies, Paul says, absent from the body, present with the Lord, instant. It's not going to feel like you died. It's going to feel like you just gloriously graduated, okay? So it's nothing to be feared for a believer. I actually believe, I don't know that I could prove it scripturally, but I believe that if you're martyred for your faith, I think the glory is times a thousand. I could be wrong, but I have that feeling, don't you? Must be incredible. There's a story of Nazis um, in World War II in Germany, I believe, who, um, Germans, before we get to Nazis, who during World War II were hunkered down and secretly meeting to worship Jesus. And they were found out, and the doors opened, and in come two German soldiers, and some of you are nodding, you know the story, and the German soldiers locked the door, guns ready to go, and said, are you here, are you meeting here to worship Jesus, yes or no? Because if it's yes, we're going to kill you. But we're giving you the opportunity. You can say no and go walk out the door right now. Yes or no. And the story goes that everybody in the little meeting said, yes, go ahead. And the soldiers put their guns down and said, good. We don't want any half-hearted Christians. We're Christians. We want to worship with people that are sold out for Jesus. Praise God pretty cool. And then they had cookies and stuff. Okay. I made that part up. Let's keep rolling. Um, So um, couplet number one, if we died with him, whether it's a natural death, whether it's the baptism and being dying to our old self, we will definitely in either of those cases live with him. But even more so if we're martyred, God forbid we will live with him. Note the contrast between died, live. There are two opposites. You're either dead or alive, not in Christianity. If you died with him, you will live with him. Second one, and that's positive, by the way. Second one, if we endure, verse 12, we will also reign with him. Who reigns? Don't say clouds, you wise guys. Kings. Kings reign, queens reign, princes reign, right? If we endure to the end, see, the first one is if your life ends and you're a believer, you'll live with him, whether it's by martyrdom, whether by natural causes or whatever. The second one is you're still alive. That involves enduring. Enduring what? Punishment, persecution, maybe suffering, pain, physically. If you endure, endure for the gospel as Paul's doing in that cell, we will also reign with him. A lot of the commentators were saying it does appear to mean that just like there are degrees of reward in heaven and degrees of punishment in hell, there may be degrees of reigning that are higher for those who've endured suffering and punishment for the Lord Jesus Christ because of their Faith. If you're suffering or being persecuted because you're a jerk, that's different, right? I'm enduring all this suffering, and I'm. if everybody hates you because you're a jerk, that's not what's being covered. He means enduring because you're a Christian, and in a Christian way, not seeking retaliation, patiently enduring. If we endure with him, we'll also reign with him, live with him, reign with him. Good, good. Now come the two bad ones. If we disown him, That's Jesus. He will also disown us. I I was thinking about this this week. I think that if I was friends and I am with Jesse here or somebody and something happened that made me, um, uh, portrayed me in a very bad light and someone met Jesse and said, do you know Joe? And he said, no, disown me because of something that has some accusation or whatever it may be, that would hurt more than if he insulted me to my face. I don't even know him. Okay. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Ouch. Okay. Before you get too worried about this, let me say, this is not the one time, oops, I slipped and said it. How do you know that? Because Peter disowned him three times. Do you remember? I don't even know him. Ouch. But Christ restored him. He repented. He was willing to die, crucified upside down years later. He was in and out of prisons and being beaten and what have you. All for Christ. This is not the one-time slip of the tongue. This is ongoing decision. I'm disowning Jesus. I used to think I believed, but I didn't. By the way, the Bible teaches that if you do that, you never truly were saved. You never really had the Holy Spirit. You never were truly making him your Lord and your Savior. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Why is that? Why doesn't he save those people anyway? Because faith is the thing, right, in the Bible. And disowning him is the opposite of faith. So it's only right that he disowns us if we um, disown him. Um, that's verse 12. Uh, let's see, we already talked about that. By the way, reigning with him, 1 Corinthians 4, Revelation 3, Revelation 5 talks about us and Revelation 20, reigning with Jesus Christ in positions of authority somehow in the millennium, in the eternal state in heaven the New Jerusalem, whatever it is, I don't understand it, but we're going to reign with him. That's pretty amazing. Um, wanted to, I didn't want to forget to say that. Um, Romans 10:9 is a main verse for Christianity. And what it says is we have to confess with our mouth Jesus as Lord. That does not mean she said it once in 1988, That's good enough. No, it's ongoing confessing. That's easy now. I mean, you might get ridiculed by a few friends that don't believe, but imagine you live in a country where if you confess Jesus with Lord and we catch you saying that, we arrest you immediately. We confiscate your stuff and we kill you. A whole different ballgame, isn't it? Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, boss, my master, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's why. Um, let's see. Peter, as I said, denied him. Judas denied him and was never saved because he never repented, did he? Peter was his. Got scared in a moment, wimped out. He never did after that. Um, so Hebrews 6, 6 says that if you deny Christ, you crucify him again to shame. Um. Yeah. So uh, there's an eternal reward for enduring and not denying Christ ever. Let's stop right there in the middle of this little song thing. Take our two minute break, stretch our aging bodies. We'll be back in two minutes. I'm going to turn my screen off. Don't go away. We'll be right back. gosh, thank you. I'm so sorry. I hit my microphone and you were seeing my lips move, but you weren't hearing anything. And somehow it didn't work. I got to hit them one at a time. My apologies. So sorry. What were you saying there, Joe? I don't remember, but I did say, go to Matthew 10. We talked about uh, reject, uh, denying Jesus is what I was talking about. So sorry for that. Matthew 10, um, And verses 32 and 33, Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my father in heaven. He says the same thing Paul says. But if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father, which is in heaven. If you're ashamed of Jesus, if you are a, and this is a weird term, closet Christian. Yeah, I believe I just don't want anybody to know something's wrong right? Why are you embarrassed about Jesus? What was happening in Paul's day was people were embarrassed about Jesus because, yeah, they're arresting Christians. It's not going very well. Did you hear about Paul? No. Yeah, he's in prison awaiting execution. I better keep my mouth shut about this Jesus thing. Absolute wrong thing to do. Um, Ken mentioned, I'm going to try to do this really fast. Ken mentioned on the break, you always talk about, and it is scriptural, um, absent from the body, present with the Lord. When a believer dies, he goes instantly into the presence of God. Paul says, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Instant. Ken brought up what happens to an unbeliever? Do they die and go directly to hell? No. There's no one in hell right now. No one. Hard to believe. Matt. Revelation chapter 20 is when there's a final judgment and people get sent to hell on the basis of one thing. What did you do with Jesus? Wait, isn't it their sin? Yes, of course. But you're sinners. I'm a sinner. Why aren't we going? What did you do with Jesus? I think he was a great teacher. Eh, Wrong answer. Say again. So where are they? She said, that's what Ken's question was. An unbeliever will call him Harold right here. He doesn't believe in Jesus, thumbs his nose at Jesus, threw a Bible in the fireplace last week. Now, do you hate him a little more now? He doesn't believe. Poor guy, never believed, dies. What happens? Luke 16, we won't go there now because I said I would do this in a minute. It's already been more than a minute. Luke 16 explains, Old Testament explains, there is another place, a dimension where dead people go. Sheol, Hades, same place. Sheol is uh, Hebrew. Hades is Greek. Same place. The place of departed spirits. It's not hell, but there is suffering there. Read Luke 16, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. They go instantly there a holding tank, if you will, to await judgment. And the rich man who was a sinner and not a believer is suffering there. There used to be Two sides of the place of departed spirits. The bad side, sorry, you people that are sitting on the left right here now. um, The bad part, waiting judgment. The good part of the faithful ones, Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, who are awaiting the resurrection. Jesus emptied that part out. I can't go into all this now. Colossians talks about this. First Peter talks about it. The point is, now there's just the bad side. If you're a Christian, you die immediately. No need to go to the waiting room. Jesus paid the price. Unbelievers await the judgment. Revelation 20, after the second coming, after the end of the world, there was a judgment where every single thing these people that didn't want Jesus, every single thing they ever said or did or even thought is judged. And nobody there will say, This isn't fair, because it is. They said no to the one person that could have saved them, right? Jesus Christ. Okay, that was more than one minute. Yes, I'm aware. And the sound is on now. I'm so impressed with myself. Sorry about that. Those of you on Zoom are watching this. Okay, sorry. I'm 67 years old. All right. Um, So it's not a one-time denial. It's ongoing kind of a thing. We know that from Peter. If we disown him, he'll disown us. Okay, here's the really bad one. 13. If we are faithless, what does that mean? Without, I don't believe in Jesus. Nope. Don't believe. Bible, God, no, no, no. If we're faithless, here's the amazing thing. He remains faithful for he cannot disown himself. Now, what does that mean? It means this. If we are without faith, he is still faithful. What does it mean for him to be faithful? When he makes promises, he keeps them regardless. Example, if we're faithless, he's faithful. What has he said? Oh, is there a problem with the YouTube? Uh, There's still no sound? Uh Uh-oh, mute. Is there sound now? Wave. Uh, I see Sheila and Joe Costa. Is there sound? Wave if there's sound. There is. Okay. That's a yes sound. So somebody doesn't have sound. So they may have hit mute on their thing, I'm thinking, or need to turn their volume back up because there is sound. Okay. Um, I totally forgot what we we're talking about. Say again. Jesus is still Faithful. Jesus is still faithful what did he say he promised if you disown him if you don't believe there's judgment could he bend the rules and no he's faithful to that promise much as you hope he won't be if you're faithless he's still faithful to the things he said those who believe receive eternal life those that don't are judged no man comes to the father except by me that means if you didn't go by him He's faithful to those sayings. He's still going to judge. Why? Because Jesus is God and God, listen, has to judge all sin. Has to. Cannot wink at it. Do you know that every sin on planet earth that ever, ever has been committed by you, by me, by unbelievers, by Hitler, by you know every single human being, every single sin, when the end comes... Every single one, excuse me, will have been judged. One of two ways. Either you pay yourself, Mr. Faithless, Mrs. Faithless, I don't want Jesus, leave me alone with that Jesus Bible stuff. Then you will pay for every single one of your sins forever in hell. Not a popular idea, doesn't make me happy to say it. Or what about Christian sins? Well, they're forgiven, so they're not judged. Oh no, you're wrong. You're forgiven. They were judged and paid for. Jesus got whipped and beaten and bled out in pain on a cross, paying for your sins. Every single sin so that God at the end of the end of the end can say that was fair. It would be unfair for him to not judge sin. It either goes on Jesus or you pay yourself. There's no other possibility. Well, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, and that helps not with God. Because if your good deeds were not done with God's glory in mind, they're not good deeds. Shall we move on now that I've alienated just about everyone? If we disown him, he'll disown us. If we're faithless, he's still faithful. He can't disown himself. If he promised he would judge sin, he will do it. Okay. Verse 14, keep reminding God's people of these things, ongoing. I said it once five years ago, say it again. Keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. This is about splitting hairs. This church was full of controversies where they would argue for hours over one little peripheral issue that doesn't really matter. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Um, what if Jesus had been a woman? Could It doesn't matter. We have God's word. Why go off on these weird tangents? What if people in hell get a second chance to go, you know, I blew it on that earth thing, and okay, I believe now. The Bible says it is appointed unto man, this is Hebrews, once to die, and then the judgment. No reincarnation, no second chance, live, die, judgment. Judgment. So all these peripheral issues, and you hear Christians arguing about this stuff now. The peccability of the Lord Jesus. Have you ever heard this? Could Jesus have sinned if he wanted to? Well, you know what? He didn't, so it doesn't matter. Okay, can we move on, please? By the way, I don't believe he could sin, but you'd be surprised the debates that go on for hours and hours. When is the rapture? Before the tribulation, during the tribulation, after the tribulation? There's no rapture. The rapture is the second coming. There is... The main things are the plain things in Christianity. We need to be focusing on the main things. In Timothy's church in Ephesus, they're arguing and debating over lame stuff. Quarrelling about words, no value. You know, Bill Clinton got in trouble back in the nineties. Do you remember? And he had a deposition, right? About did you have sexual relations with Miss Lewinsky? Do you remember that? The question was asked in a in a um, deposition. Is there a relationship between you and Miss Lewinsky? Do you remember what he said? It depends on your definition of the word is. Remember that? What? Depends on your definition of the word is. Quarreling about words. Tell the truth. You don't have to bother with that stuff. Okay. Um, So he's got to warn them about it. It's of no value to go off on a tangent. It ruins those who listen. It even says in verse 14, 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed or blush, who rightly or correctly handles or divides the word of truth. This is a famous verse and one we're going to spend some time on. Do your best. Try as hard as you can, Timothy, or you, if you teach others Christianity, the Bible, the word of God. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. What are, being, what are we being approved about? Being a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed or blush, who correctly, literally the word is cuts, divides the word of truth. The word for this cutting was used of anybody in making clothing or construction Where you ever build something and you got to measure, it's got to be six feet, 11 inches. You know what? If it's six feet, 11 and a half inches, it ain't going to work. You got to, the cuts have to be right, don't they? In a building or it'll look like I built it. It'll be leaning tower of Joe. Same thing with making clothes. Same thing. Paul was a tent maker. The word was used for the cutting of materials to make tents. So what's going on here? There's a right and a wrong way to interpret the Bible. We've talked about this before, that you can take verses out of context. You can twist them. Ever have the Jehovah's Witnesses come to your door and you talk to them? Man, they are the best at twisting Scripture. Okay, so the question arises... I want to do this, Joe. I want to be a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed or blush. I want to rightly handle the word of truth, rightly divide. Are there rules for doing this? And the answer is yes. I'm going to share them with you now. There are others, but these are the main ones. How can you tell what a scripture means? Okay. Um, Here are the rules. Uh, well, this is before we get to the rules. Remember that the Bible is not a smorgasbord. You can't just pick. I don't like Romans four. I never read it. It doesn't apply to me. Sorry. Yes, it does. Right. Not a smorgasbord. Oh, these verses about alcohol. I like to drink. So I, you know, and get drunk and that doesn't apply to me. That's the first one, but here's the main one. Context is determinative. What does that mean? It means context, what is being talked about in the chapter before this one and in the chapter you're reading, and what comes after it. To pull stuff out of context is to twist scripture. Let me give you two scriptures. Okay. I'm going to purposely pull them out of their context and make it ridiculous. Okay, this is right out of the Bible. And Jesus, I'm sorry, and Judas went and hanged himself. Is that in the Bible? Yes. Okay, that's scripture number one. And Judas went and hanged himself. Here's scripture number two. Go and do likewise. Hey, that's right out of the Bible. Go ahead, hang yourself. Come on. The the context of go and do likewise is not about hanging yourself, is it? So context, don't pluck scriptures out of their chapter. When you're reading the Bible, by the way, don't do this, flip the pages and go right here. You ever do that? Maybe God has some special message for me. He does start at some book, start at verse one of chapter one, go through the whole book. That's you want the whole meal or do you want one, one bite of lasagna and you think you got a whole meal? Okay. Context is so important what's going on in the book before and after number two the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible get a concordance you can google scriptures about love and you'll web pages will come up with every scripture about love scriptures about death scriptures about children the Bible is the best way to Det- determine what the Bible reads is other scriptures. Okay. Scripture interprets scripture. Cross-referencing, it's called. Number three, harmony. This is not a musical term. It means don't build a doctrine on one verse. If you can't find several verses that, that agree with that doctrine you're trying to sell me, it has to be discarded. Uh, so, uh, let's see. Consider the genre. What do you mean? Some of the Bible is poetry. Some of it is history. Some of it's prophecy. Some of it's a parable. Some of it's a vision or a narrative. The Bible says that Jesus is a door. Now, do you does that? Are you taking that literally? Does it mean he had hinges over here on several parts of his body and a little doorknob right here that you could turn? No, that's clearly figurative language. A door is something that you use to enter somewhere else. He's the door to God, the door to heaven. Take it in the way in which it's intended, right? God will protect his people by covering them with his wings. So if you get to heaven, don't look for the feathered God. You won't find him. It's a metaphor for the way a bird protects its young ones, if you will. So take it the way in which it's intended. Okay. I love this next one. The Holy Spirit. Without the Holy Spirit, you can read the Bible all you want. You're not going to get it. So you have to kind of have to be a believer. The Holy Spirit illumines the word of God. First Corinthians two, it's in the notes. We won't go there now because we're getting late on time. He, the Holy Spirit wrote the whole book. He should know. He'll make it make sense to you. That's why I ask every time, if you notice Tuesday nights, please let it be the Holy Spirit that speaks, not me, through me. Okay, historical context. What was going on at that time? That will help you understand what's going on, right? There's a Roman empire. There's a guy named Nero who hates Christians, who made Christians public enemy number one because there was a huge fire in Rome, and they blame the Christians. So Paul gets rearrested. Christians are kind of going underground because of that. That's history. That's important. This is a really good one. When the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. In other words, if you look at the prophecies of the Messiah that are supposed to, this Messiah figure, the anointed one, the savior of the world, Old Testament. Um there are a bunch of scriptures that predict what he's going to do and what he's going to be. And I always imagine rabbis from that time reading these scriptures and saying, now, I wonder what that means born in Bethlehem. Hmm. What could that mean? He, it means he was born in Bethlehem. The clear when the clear, Meaning, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Oi, look at this verse here, born of a virgin. What could that mean? Well, it could be symbolic. No, he was born of a virgin. It meant what it meant. They've pierced my hands and my feet. What could that mean? Some sort of pain. And No, it means they pierced his hands and his feet. You see what I'm saying? This is important, I believe, when interpreting prophecy for the end times. Because I read it, and it makes sense to me the way it's read. There'll be wars and rumors of wars and preceding the end. We're about to read, next week it'll be, about the end times in 2 Timothy. What kind of people the world's going to turn into, and it's not good. I don't take it symbolically. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, pride, pr- prideful, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous. I'm taking that literally. I'm seeing it today. Right. Some of you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, OK, back to the text. Sorry, but rightly dividing the word of truth. Um, There are people that Jehovah's Witnesses and others believe Jesus didn't rise from the dead bodily. Yes, but it says he resurrected. Yes, but that's a spiritual resurrection. You see, his body just evaporated. What does Jesus say in Luke 24? He appears to the apostles all of a sudden, remember in the upper room? They freak out. They think they're seeing a ghost. They're all afraid. And he says, Handle me. And see, a spirit, if that's what you think I am, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as you see I have. That's an example of twisting scripture. There's a hundred others. Historical context when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. And number eight, interpret the unclear passages, because there are some, in light of the clear ones, not the other way around you got to check out a doctrine based on the rest of Scripture. If your doctrine works in this one passage, but then over here, oh, that contradicts it, you're probably wrong, right? So um, just some examples of how to interpret Scripture. Um, But a workman that doesn't need to blush or be ashamed, rightly dividing, rightly handling God's Word, the Word of truth. Have you ever read a passage and thought, Whew. I don't know what that means. There are concordances you can read. There are commentaries online that are free that you can read. But you know what works a lot of times? Lord, I'm just reading First Corinthians 15. I don't understand it. Would you reveal to me what this means? You, you mean he'll do that? Absolutely. I'm willing to receive your meaning for it. Lead me to your meaning for it. Okay. A worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. It's important, isn't it? The owner's manual for living. You know what Bible stands for? Basic instructions before leaving earth, right? Doesn't really stand for that, but it makes sense. I like it. Verse 16, avoid godless chatter. That's that splitting hairs stuff. Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. What's godless chatter? It's more worldly philosophy. In church, you can hear today in America, this week, I can tell you where to go if you want to hear it, that you can have whatever you want if you'll just name it and claim it. You can hear that... um, God ends up saving everyone, and no one goes to hell. There's a huge church in Chicago where the guy is teaching that. You can hear in Christian churches that poverty is a curse, as is sickness. And if you're sick or poor or both, you just don't have enough faith. Or you have unconfessed sin. It's your fault that you're sick or that you're poor. There's a Greek word for this, baloney, right? Is that Greek? I don't know. Maybe they invented baloney. Who knows? Be careful to check out um, what anybody says, including me or your pastor or the guy on TV or radio that you like to listen to. The Bereans were considered more noble, this is in the book of Acts, because they heard Paul and then they went to the scriptures to check it out every day to see if what he said was true. You need to do the same, be discerning. There's a lot of stuff that sounds so good and it's wrong, it's not biblical. Well, how can we avoid being fooled, Joe? Know the real thing so well that when you hear something that's not right, It makes the hairs on the back of your hair. It makes your hair stand up like, wait, something's wrong here. You are all gods. We've just forgotten that. That's not biblical. You can just tell, right? But show me somebody that never really reads the Bible, goes to church, and they go, oh, I like that. Tell me more. There's a church a tenth of a mile from where we're sitting here in this building where they teach that exact thing. Positive Living Center in Oakhurst. Don't go there. They teach that we're we're all gods. This is our mother planet Earth. I have neighbors that believe this stuff. Okay. Don't knock on their door. All right. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Uh, Are we up to verse 17? What about this godless chatter becoming more and more ungodly? Verse 17, their teaching will spread like gangrene gangrena believe it or not i'm not making that up in greek gangrene is a disease that eats flesh it'll eat away at flesh instead of making you grow and making you better spiritually it'll make you worse now here's a weird thing their teaching will spread like gangrene among them are hymenaeus and Philetus. Did you have to name their names? That's so unloving. He names names elsewhere too. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. Be aware of these people. Watch out. So I know that I've alienated a few people by telling you that I think that Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer, Benny Hinn, Kenneth Kagan, Kenneth Copeland, there's a hundred of them. Are false teachers. I feel it's my duty to warn you, be careful who you listen to, not biblical. Almost all those people I mentioned believe in what I was saying. You can name it and claim it. If you're sick, it's a curse. Um, Jesus, listen to this one, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, most of them teach this one. Jesus did not pay for your sins on the cross. How about that one? come on do you know your bible it's so in there where did he pay for our sins then experts Osteen and Myers in hell where he was tortured for three days by the devil and his demons that's where he did it he started speaking faith-filled words down there and it's a nice story sorry paid for our sins on the cross what does he say on the cross it is almost finished I got to go for three days to hell but it's all sorry it's finished what does he say so when he dies they're saying he went right to hell to pay for our sins down there what does he say on the cross father into your hands I commit my spirit doesn't sound like he went to hell to me it is finished to tell us I paid in full what'd you say Today, you'll be with me in hell suffering. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. It's so easy because you know the scriptures, right? Absolutely, but he doesn't pay for our sins down there. He empties out the the place of departed spirits, the one side that was faithful ones. Um, Hopefully, I didn't say that when the, I probably did when the mic was off. Oh, well, in any case shall we move on? But notice that he names names, Hymenaeus and Philetus. These two guys are, they've departed, verse 18, from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place and they destroy the faith of some. See, you think we're going to be raised in the future. No, no, it's a spiritual resurrection. It's already occurred. Twisting scripture, bodily resurrection, resurrection for Jesus bodily resurrection for you and me if you die tomorrow God forbid and they say nice stuff about you and they put you in the ground or they cremate you whatever it is someday when Christ comes back out of that grave out of that urn is going to come you resurrected reformed can God do that absolutely Well, but if people have been cremated, it's they can't. Why? If somebody died in the year 605 and you opened their grave, I don't want to be gross here, but there's nothing left now. God can, he knows the blueprint for you, right? He's going to remake you. It'll still be you without the sin, without the evil. Perfected, glorified. Okay, we're out of time, and most of you are asleep anyway. Let's close with prayer, and then we'll pick it up next week, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in your word. How awesome to have a book written by God to us. We we owe you everything, God. May we be brave, faithful, never ashamed, never denying you, no matter what they do to us, willing to work, willing to suffer, a good farmer a good athlete, a good soldier. Thank you for your word, God, this Bible. May we not read it on Tuesdays only or Sundays only, but every day put it where it'll be read on the kitchen table or next to my chair at home or by the bed. That's dangerous because I fall asleep, but help us to read it and study it and remember what we learned so that we won't be fooled by these counterfeits or get off on tangent. Tangents, thank you for your word, God. We love you. Can't wait to see you. One day we know that we will. We will endure. If we die with you, we'll live with you. What what beauty there is in the gospel, God. Thank you for Jesus who makes all this possible because he paid for the sins that we don't have to now. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know if you're here. That's really important. Those of you on Zoom, thank you for being here. God bless you. See you next week. God willing. Thanks.